0: So uh, I'm going to take some pretty significant risks um, today with you. I figure we've been community long enough, and um, so in various ways I'm going to kind of get real today. And I hope hope that's okay with you. If it's not, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I I give you a warning, I, I guess you could leave now. Um, <laughs> but I uh, the the text that I thought that God would have us start out this silence and solitude three weeks um, only three weeks uh, that's about all Angelians can probably cope with um, <laughs> for that topic. But we'll we'll give it a good shot. Um, I, I wanted to uh, start out in a, a very personal way and also with uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 14, which is, of course, the the story of Jesus' temptations. It's kind of weird, I know, silence and solitude, but hopefully, uh, if you can just kind of hang with me for a little while, I'll um, be able to tie that all together. So we already prayed, um, we already sung some songs, so I guess it's just time to just get right into it, right? I, uh, just out of college, started vocational ministry. So we're all in ministry, right? So this is like my belief that we're all in ministry. Uh, Somewhere along the way, God chose me to focus more in, uh, in ministry in sort of a more vocational way. And so I came on staff with a campus ministry right out of college called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And my, so I was 22, that's when I entered into the ministry life. And I, my assignment was to move about a thousand miles away from Montana to Arizona to start a new fellowship at Northern Arizona University and I was really excited about this uh being somewhat of a visionary type of person and kind of eager I wrote a 20-page strategic plan for the planting of this new ministry in Flagstaff Arizona before I went there I basically read the college catalog and tried to get a feel for the campus I know it's sort of the arrogance of a 22 year old but That's what I did, moved to Flagstaff, and with two other students, we started this uh, ministry. And as it turned out, a lot of that sort of uh, 20-page strategic plan, I didn't even know how to write a strategic plan, it was just like, you know, all right, let's just do it, I think we're going to need... X amount of students at this time, and we'll need X amount of leaders at this time, and it will grow by X amount this year, and then the next year, and then the next year following. Now, uh, amazingly, that is actually pretty much how it went, along with some other pretty intense uh, suffering. So about two and a half years into this ministry endeavor, uh, it was going well. Students were becoming Christians. We were, I had read a bunch of uh, John Wimber's books. So we were praying and people were being healed. And sometimes there were demons that would manifest in our little campus fellowship meetings, um, you know, right there in the student union building. So kind of crazy stuff. Flagstaff was also a pretty tough place. It's a, a center for the new age movement and satanic ritual cults. So sometimes we'd be hiking in the woods, you know, the students and I go on a hike and we'd come across a an altar that had been used for a sacrifice the previous night. There were still animal renderings of some sort there. So pretty dark place, pretty tough place for young brazen prideful 22-year-old Two and a half years in I took my first vacation That should give you a sign right there about me Took took well hello Heidi (laughs) Took me uh, took me two and a half years to actually take a break and take a vacation and I went to uh, France with some friends of mine. And within about three days of this vacation, I was depressed. So imagine being in Paris, France, and, you know, kind of dream place. I, I, and, it, and it really was. It was during Christmas time, so it was beautiful, all lights, uh, you know, just gorgeous. And here I was depressed. It was the first time I had been away from the drug of ministry and the drug of getting my identity by doing stuff. So it was a pretty intense reality. And I remember praying during that time. It it. About two weeks into this, it was a three-week vacation, so was, that's not bad, right? Uh, and uh, but I was so miserable. I was praying, and I saw this picture of a round table, and on the table was a collage of photos. And the photos were of students who had become Christians, some who had, become, uh, who had been healed in significant ways, student leaders who had been freed up and you know, who were doing well. It was like basically a kind of all of these success stories. And on top of all of these success stories was a big red question mark, which was from the Holy Spirit calling into question everything, all of my efforts and all of the fruit that had happened. And I knew instantly what that meant. Let's read together in chapter 4 of Luke. And we'll start at verse 1. And I'd like us to read together out loud. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here's what we have in this passage. It is a redo of the garden, it's a redo of the Garden of Eden, and what men and women, man and woman, so miserably failed before Jesus, in his full humanity, is embracing his call, his vacation, his vocation, and in, and embracing what it means to actually be human. And what it actually means to be human is that there are these temptations and these opportunities to give our allegiance to idols. And so what happens in this passage is that uh, the, the evil one, just like he came to the woman and to the man uh, in the garden and said, hey, well, did God really say that you would? It's the same type of thing. The devil comes to Jesus, and not only does he offer him these temptations, um, he, he encourages him and invites him into giving up his vocation, his role, as the Son of God, as as the Messiah, and so what I want to do together uh, is is look at look at those three temptations and and kind of how they interact um, with my life, and maybe then how they interact with your life. But let me just give a, a few points as we start. First of all, the Spirit leads us into silence and solitude, just like. The Spirit led Jesus into this place of, and and also fasting. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to conveniently leave that out, but it is in the passage. Um, Jesus fasted for four days, and he's by himself. And, you know, maybe he wasn't fully silent. Maybe he's uh, reciting scripture, because certainly he knew it. But he was in this place of silence and and solitude and um, uh, deprived. For a significant period of time. Secondly, silence and solitude often uncover and reveal our inner world. And I think that this is the, the major reason why God leads us into silence and solitude, because we have the opportunity to discover what really is there in us when it's just us when it's just me. And sometimes it's temptations uh, to give our allegiance to an idol. Sometimes it is a revelation that we actually already have given our allegiance to an idol. Fourthly, So sometimes what's revealed is the temptations, and sometimes it's revealed that we have given our allegiance. Third, now fourth, choosing idols causes us to relinquish our God-given vocation. We are to be image bearers of God in this creation. And what happens when we choose idols is that we give allegiance to a created thing. And ultimately, five, that choosing of that idol enslaves us in some fashion. It, it brings bondage to our lives. So six, silence and solitude gives us the opportunity to get rid of those idols and to be transformed into who we're actually truly meant to be. All right, so that's that's kind of the synopsis, and we'll we'll kind of work with that um, for the next couple of weeks that we're together. Um, but let's look more closely at this passage. Jesus um, is is in the desert. He's been fasting. He's by himself. He's in solitude. It's <clears throat> um, he hasn't eaten anything, and um, and the devil comes to him, and he says, uh, verse. 3 and 4, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So I think this first temptation or this first offering from the devil is uh, the idol of appetites. It's the way that we seek comfort or security or... uh, um, escape by turning to something that's created. It could be food, it could be uh, alcohol, it could be sex, pornography, work, relationships, whatever causes us to uh, seek after something that's created more so than to seek after God. And I have to say for my own life, um, that appetite has to do with relationships. Over the years, um, as a young adult, and um, as a 20-something, as a 30-something, we don't have to go on. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. Uh, I find or I happen upon certain relationships that kind of uncover me. Now. Partly the uncovering is that I feel so myself in this relationship That um, there's a sense of security But then when that uncovering happens it it produces in me such a hunger for love That I honestly feel like I I cannot live without this person in my life And so that that's how the dynamic happens for me it's 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 the uh, seeking after and getting comfort, almost in an addictive way, from a relationship and from being with a person. Now, I knew this about myself for pretty much all my life. I mean, it, it happened when I was a teenager, you know, that teenage boy, I just, you know, I thought I was going to die without him. And, um, and then as time goes on with intimate friends, um, where where I'm learning what intimacy means. And then as I try intimacy, it's like, oh my gosh, intimacy is so amazing. And then it's so freaking scary. And I feel like I'm going to die without this person. It's It's like a drug. And it really wasn't until these seasons of silence and solitude that I finally was able to actually tell someone about this craving that I had to be loved to be with um, the person and that is what brought freedom it wasn't me covering it up it wasn't me hiding it it wasn't me uh, going to like kind of a 12-step group and, you know, al- although that did help. But somewhere along the line, I had to go to the place that I was most afraid of and say it out loud. And in the scene out loud, it wasn't an idol anymore, and we could work on it. The second idol in our passage, verses 5 and 6. The second idol is power. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I, I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And then Jesus responds to him. Now, perhaps we haven't been offered a kingdom, but we all build our own little kingdoms, don't we? Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a work position. Maybe it's a leadership position. Maybe it's uh, control. Maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. I mean, for me, obviously, it was this drivenness about ministry and starting a a fellowship on this campus in Flagstaff, Arizona. That was my little kingdom. I had to be in control. Nobody else could partner with me and be involved with me. I even kind of kept the local pastors at a distance because I didn't really want them messing with my students because, you know, I was doing the real discipleship and the church was probably going to mess them up somehow. Uh, You know, again, the arrogance of the 22 year old now turning 23 and 24 and 25 and so on. And not only, not only did I sort of bar other people from being involved with this ministry, my kingdom, I, um, I was harsh to those who weren't on board and who weren't doing what I thought they should be doing in order to lead the Bible study or share the gospel or disciple other students. And so, uh, to my shame, there's the story of Cindy. Cindy became uh, a Christian through our, our ministry uh, on campus, and um, she was very bright, um, an artist, very smart. Um, I, she became a Christian through the small group that I was leading in a dorm. And um, I baptized her in her church. And um, anyway, it was great. She became a leader in the fellowship, and offering her her many many talents, led a small group, was discipling other students. About a couple of years after she became a believer, I noticed that she was sort of um, starting to withdraw from. The fellowship. And I kind of asked her, hey, you know, what's going on? She's like, you know, Shelly, I'm just tired. I, uh, you know, I just, I think I need a break from ministry. I'm like, no, no, you know, we're in it. We're, ah, you know, cheerleader. And, uh, you know, it's God is doing so many things. You can't take a break now because look at all this fruit we have. And um, there's so much happening in your dorm. And, and look, you're about ready to start three new Bible studies. You can't take a break now. So the conversation kind of went along like that. Eventually, Cindy started dating a non-Christian guy. And um, distancing herself more and more from um, the ministry, and uh, and then eventually uh, she just quit altogether. And I said, "Okay, well, fine, whatever, you know, go along with the devil." Then no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't actually say that, you know, um, but I was pretty. Um, I was pretty cold towards her. She became pregnant. Um, she's living with this guy, and about five months into her pregnancy, she miscarried. Baby died. She had a significant hemorrhage, lost a lot of blood in the hospital for days. And I didn't visit her. Because so I was still pissed off about my little agenda getting ruined. So she walked away from the Lord. And as far as I know, to this day, Cindy is not hanging with Jesus. And every time I tell the story, I always want who's ever listening to this story to pray for her. Um, I, along the way, um, Cindy is so talented that she ended up coming to the art center here in Pasadena. And interestingly enough, I was studying at Fuller at that time. And so, um, but she was so hurt by me and my leadership that she told her friends not to tell me that she lived in Pasadena. We lived like within a mile of each other for three years, and I didn't even know that she was here. Numerous times through her friends, I've tried to reach out and um, initiate reconciliation, but so far to this day she hasn't uh, been able to, we haven't been able to reconcile. I think the problem with little kingdoms and our need to control is that it ends up impacting other people. And we end up driving them into the ground using them. I I used people. That's what that big red question mark was about that I saw in a vision in Paris, France, was that God was calling into question my uh, approach to ministry because I used people for my own vision. Now, of course, there's all good stuff in there too, right? Okay, it's not a big black or white, you know, Shelley's a really bad person. Um, they're really amazing, good stories, but this is where God was talking with me about uh, during that time. So here's here's the next temptation, or the third idol, verses nine through eleven. I just call it the idol of pride or fame. The devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, you know, now that the devil is going to throw some Bible verses back at Jesus. Maybe that will help. I don't know. Um, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you unless your hands they strike you, you know, etc., you know, etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So, okay, this is the big reality TV show that Jesus could have had, right? Like, Jesus goes to the top of the temple, he throws himself down, and he's okay. Like, think about that. Like, everyone would have seen it. Everyone would have been thrilled by it. And he could have had everyone come running to him and be the leader. I mean, it's it's like a a spectacular, amazing reality show. Maybe not as good as, um, well, anyway, yeah. We won't go there. Um but but Jesus doesn't doesn't do that. Um he Jesus has another way that is going to draw people to him. It's not going to be through this spectacular major big healing reality TV show. Um, it's it's not going to be that, you know, g- gathering large crowds and, um, and then eventually becoming an earthly king. It's going to be like the real king, the real deal king, um, with the kingdom of God, which is much more uh, subversive and much more subtle. So there's this um, idol of pride and fame and silence and solitude invite us into that place where we need to just let go of that that stuff it's really not about us I mean we are the sons and daughters of an amazing God who who loves us and demonstrates his goodness to us in amazing ways but it's really just still not about us so when I came back from France, I, I, I was I was kind of a mess because I was still depressed and while I was in France, I went skiing in the Alps, which is sort of my ultimate all-time dream thing to do because I, I grew up skiing. And on the very first run, not even on a steep hill or a hill at all, I, I mean really, I fell, I hit some ice, and I fell, and I uh, dislocated my thumb. Common accident for skiers, because you're holding a pole, and then you you know, reach out, and Wah. all right, so I was not going to stop that day from skiing, so I put my thumb back in the joint, which I did know how to do, because I worked in an emergency room, and I skied the rest of the day. Hmm, driven slightly psychotic, Uh, I don't know. Um, So I skied and um, by the time I finished the day it looked like I had a fat lady hand, you know, and then we were getting on a plane the next day going back. So I arrived back um, at home, uh, um, California first, went to the ER, had torn ligaments, really a mess, really messed up my, um, actually it's the right hand, really messed up that, had a cast on, went back to Flagstaff, okay, so then I get the word that I have to be off campus for six months because I don't have enough money. I have to be off campus, raise my support, and so I arrive back in Flagstaff. I've got a cast on, I I don't have my ministry drug, um, and I'm required to go to Therapy. Therapy. All right, now I am from a family that is hard working, ranching, farming, never ask for help. Do hell, do not go to therapy. Because that is for crazy people. And I am required to do this because my supervisor knows what a psychotic person I am. And You know, I was so mad. So I have to drive to Phoenix three hours once a week, down three hours down, three hours back to go to counseling. Then that counselor makes me go to a 12-step group. And I go to a 12-step group as an adult children of alcoholics. And I went to that and I thought, you people are so messed up. I'm sure that I could help you. Maybe I should do some of the pastoring here in this group. So I just kept quiet the whole time. Um, because I knew at least enough to not, you know, start telling people what they should be doing. Then I had to go to a home group. This home group, i, I it was unbelievable. Um, there was a homeless guy, homeless alcoholic guy. Um, there was a paranoid schizophrenic who... Um, uh, every night when she went to bed, the the plants in her house would move around. And then she would hear people behind her talking about killing her. And then there's another guy who has some kind of Tourette. And he, like, you know, when he talked, it would be like this. He'd be, you know. And so you're really trying to follow him, but he, you're, you're really, you know, as you're listening to him. And then there was kind of two other sort of normal people like me. And, um, <laughs> and that was my home group. And I had to commit to going to that damn home group every week. I was so unhappy. <laughs> my friends, I had never in my whole life asked for help. My pride was so extensive. My ability to cover my weaknesses was so intense that for my whole life I had never asked for help. And I had to just day by day, week by week, learn how to ask for help because my idol of pride was so big and and so destructive. And I have to say, I, I think that God is so gracious to me because, look, I, I was in my 20s, right? Well, thank God he didn't let me run amok until I'm in my 50s. Think about all those people. And think about my own soul that would have... Um, continued to be in bondage for such a long, long time. And so it was through this six months of (laughs) silence and solitude with these crazy people that God showed me how to receive love, how to ask for help, how to receive help. And it changed me forever. Taught me how to have silence and solitude. You didn't have to work all the time, Shelley. Don't work 15 hours a day or 12 hours a day. Have time. Get a hobby, for crying out loud. Get some friends. And thank God that happened to me in my 20s. So I I think that ultimately, at, at least this is my experience, is that the practice of the silence and the solitude brings us to a place of transformation, a place of freedom. And I promise you, you're going to like it. You're going to like that place of freedom because this other bondage stuff is really treacherous. The things that you're most afraid to reveal or you're the most scared about and that you've, you hide, those are the things that God... Uh, wants to lift off of you and bring freedom, release from bondage, because we're not living who we're created to be when we're serving idols. So we're gonna end this time, and I'm gonna give us some uh, space now to actually practice silence. And I'll, I'll keep track of the time, So you don't have to worry about it. But what I'd like to do is just um, be quiet. And I I think when we do an exercise like this, there can be all sorts of things that bubble up. There can be feelings. There can be fears. There can be, oh, my gosh, is she going to make a share afterwards? Or, you know, what is this crazy person going to do? Maybe it's the list of things that we need to accomplish this following week. I don't know. Lots of things bubble up. So I just would encourage you that when those things bubble up, whether they're feelings or lists or uh, fears, just to acknowledge them and then just gently set them aside. Breathe deeply. Try to notice the voices that you hear. Is it a judgmental voice? Is it an accusing voice? Is it God voice? Is it a loving adult? Is it um, a voice of love? And then after we have this period of time, we'll move directly into singing some more and, um, and not silence, I guess. That's the easiest way to say that. Um, so let's, let's be quiet together. And we're going to do this for eight minutes, so don't get freaked out, okay? I don't know. Maybe you all are used to doing hours of science. I'm not sure. I'm assuming not because we live in Los Angeles. And, uh, but let's do it for eight minutes, and I'll break us at eight minutes. Let me pray for you as we go into this. God, I ask that you could bring your peace, that you would fill us with your spirit just as you did Jesus and that you could help us journey to our inner world and notice what's there. Maybe it's voices. Maybe it's your voice. Maybe it's a temptation, or it's an idol, or... um, or it's just your loving words and your goodness that you offer. Help us to be gentle towards ourselves and lay aside um, those lists of things or the feelings, um, especially if they're the evil one accusing us and judging us. And then bring us to a place of rest.